Tell me what time it is. What do I often say? What time is it? There it is. It's the most important time in this service today. And why is it the most important time in this service? Because we're going to hear the word of the Lord. And we are not the type of church, nor do we desire to be the type of church that picks and chooses from God's word what, what we're going to preach out of. Because it's all the word of the Lord, from Genesis to Revelation and all in between. And to, 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 to shy away from any word for any reason is to say, God, you can't speak in this church which I don't ever want to stand in front of the Lord. <laughs> I want him to speak to us. And so today we go back to the word of the Lord. And I want to go back to Zechariah. These verses will be on the screen. And I want to thank our guys that help us on the scriptures because the scriptures are our are, uh, governing document. Can I say, can he say amen? It's the governing, do- it's the word of the Lord. And uh, the way we follow Jesus is we follow his teachings. And uh, so I want to look at the book of Zechariah again, and and we're actually going to be looking. I'm going to read a passage out of Zechariah chapter one, but then we're going to really look at chapter two and chapter three. We're going to kind of we're going to kind of embrace it all together. And as as I give you my introduction today, it's going to be a a little bit longer of an introduction because what I want to do this morning, I want to take you back to context. It's very important that we see the context and we feel what they were going through in this passage of Scripture. And, and we'll, we'll weave some passages together because I believe that the Word of God is a unity. In other words, you're not going to read over here and, and, and find something different, contradictory over here. It's a, it's a supernatural unity. It's, one, it's a miracle. It's one of, the, one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world that, that some 40-plus authors could write over a period of approximately 15, 1600 years, and they could write on such intricate subject of God, and yet it doesn't contradict itself. I, we could all write on the same thing, and we, in a week's time we'd all disagree. Come on, amen? But this is the word of the Lord. And the message today and the title that I've given this message is this, Building Your Life. On the promises of God. Did you hear that? You can almost want to title this. I didn't rebuilding. Rebuilding your life. On the promises of God. Father I ask your blessing on these scriptures that I read. Before I read this text I pray over it. And we pray for the needs that we've prayed for here. That we've spoken here. Lord we ask that your blessing would be upon our brother C.E. Lord, he has struggled over this past number of years. But you're able to bring healing to his body. You're able to heal Mackenzie, Carlos, and Ezra, and Bennett. You're able to heal our bodies. There is nothing too hard for you. We thank you this day. For your blessing on all of our families, those that are out of town, those that may be home because they're not feeling well. But we ask you to bless this body. We ask you, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus to build this church. Lord, now we believe, and we don't want to be presumptuous, but we believe that it will be months now, not years, but just months. And we will be worshiping in a new place. 
a new place, a new facility. But Lord, the most important thing is not the building. It's not the brick and mortar and the stone and the steel and the concrete. But Lord, the most important thing is your word and your presence and your will. And we pray that you would build this as a mighty church of real Christians, strong Christians that love you, love your word. We ask to bless your servant today as I bring this message. I pray that all of these verses will hit the mark today and they would be blessing upon us. And we've already been blessed. We've already been blessed, Father, because we've heard your word read already. We've heard your worship. We've heard, we've exalted your name. We prayed. We had the, the wonderful privilege of giving to your, for, to your work in the world and to making a difference. So I ask your blessing to rest upon this message and let it not be stolen. Let the seed not be stolen by the enemy, but let it bear some 30, some 60, some 100. And we ask it in Jesus name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 So I want to read, first of all, Zechariah chapter 1. And I'm going to begin in verse 12. And then this will springboard us into chapter 2 and 3. And here's what the word of the Lord says in, in this passage. It says, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem? And on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these 70 years. The people have been in captivity 70 years. Now they're back. And Zechariah is seeing a vision of this. He's watching this in a vision. He has a series of eight night visions. And he sees this angel say this to the Lord. Verse 13, and the Lord answered in the angel who talked with me and said, and, and with notice, with, with good and with comforting words. The angel says, how long, Lord? How long until this? And, he's, and, he, and the Lord answers. Now, remember last week we talked about the, the, the words. They were strong words and they were convicting words. And now he turns around and the Lord says, there's comforting words. I mean, you know, sometimes God's word are convicting and sometimes God's word are comforting, but they're all God's words. And then it says, so the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am, exceeding, I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry and they helped, but with, with evil intent. In other words, they went too far. I told them to do this, but they went too far. And he says, therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So God's now going to speak comforting words. So we're going to talk about building our life on the promises of God. If I, you know, they say that you're not ready to, to preach and minister a message unless you can give a message in a sentence. So here's my sermon. If I could capsulize what I'm going to say to you this morning, and if I could give it in a sentence, I would say this, that our new beginnings always start with God's promises. Listen, no matter where you are today, 
No matter what you're facing today, maybe you're in, and maybe an area of your life or your whole life needs to be restored and rebuilt. Our new beginning always starts with a thus says the Lord. And now think about it. Here's the people of the Lord after 70 years of ruins and having a hard time. And God says, I'm going to bring comforting words. I'm going to bring sweet words. I'm going to bring encouraging words. Why? Because rebuilding and restoring always starts with God's promises. Now, many times we see in, in our world, you've seen it, I've seen it. We see people live lives separated from God. We see people living in self-will and selfishness. They live separated from the commands of God. And I can tell you, that approach is always destined for failure. Now, I'll say it this way. We may live, and I say we, I'm using that, not us, but just in general. Human beings can live and maybe even experience what we would call worldly success. And they may, they may experience that for a while, but in the end, it always is destined for failure. And why is that? Because worldly success doesn't mean, and it's no sign that we have success with God. There's many people in our world today, the world will say are very successful, but are they successful with God? Those things are not always synonymous our Lord said this, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of things that he possesses. Jesus often brought this dichotomy. He, he taught one time of a man that had great success. In fact, he used the term, he fared sumptuously every day, meaning this was excessive, ex excessive uh, success and excessive luxury. He fared sumptuously every day. But in the story Jesus gave, the man ended up in hell. Jesus taught of another man. He had this, a young man who had everything the world's looking for. He was a rich young ruler. He had wealth, he had position, he had power. And Jesus said, come and follow me. Give all that up and come follow me. And the young man rejected that wonderful invitation to follow Jesus and he went away. And, and by the world's standards, I don't know where the young man went. We don't get any other words in the scripture, but maybe, maybe in the world's eyes, he got more money and more power and more success. But that doesn't mean he was successful with God. Because that can only last for a while. The point is this. The values that we have as the followers of Jesus are directly in contradiction to the value system of the world. And what I mean by that. What, what the value system of the world is, is based on pride. On possessions. On power. And certainly on pleasure. But the things that we value are humility. And love. And sacrifice and service. And we're building our lives on one or two things. Jesus taught in another place and he said you can build your life on the rock at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Or you can build your life on the sand. The rock means you can build your life on the teachings of Jesus. Or you can build your life on the sand, which, which is rebellion, uh, self-interest, and self-will. And then at the end of the story, what happens the, the rain and the winds and all beat on, on both of the houses. One house remained and the other house fell with utter destruction. Now, the, most of the time you hear the interpretation is the, the winds and the storms that beat against the house 
or the, or the difficulties <coughs> and, the, and the problems of life. That's not the interpretation, I don't believe. I believe the interpretation of the utter destruction is the utter destruction at the judgment of God. The house was completely destroyed. Two different lives, now notice this, two different lives, uh, uh, both experiencing the, the same thing, but living in different value system. The point is this, a life built on obedience to the word of God will last eternally, will last forever in the presence of God. I mean, we're getting ready for eternity now. What we're doing now will show up in eternity. The way you live is the way you die. And a life built on rebellion and self-will will be like the chaff that the wind drives away. We see these two, you see these dichotomies. We see these two different things in the psalmist. Like in Psalm 1 about the righteous man and, and then the, the man without God. I could say it that way. He said it this way. He's like the tree planted, the righteous man, the man who builds his house on the rock, the man who follows the Lord, the man who obeys the teachings of the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Look at this. Gives his fruit in season and whose leaf also, notice, shall not, shall not wither. It lasts, it's eternal, it's substantive. And then in verse 5 he says, or verse 4 he says, the ungodly men are not so. Do you see the two things? Like chaff, the wind drives away. The ungodly shall not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Do you see the two? One is substantive. One is solid. One is built on Christ. One is like, like a tr- planted by the rivers of water. It's, its leaf doesn't wither. The other's like chaff. It's not substance. It's not built on the word of God. We see this over and over and again in scripture. We see Jeremiah doing the very same thing. This is, this is before the captivity that I just read that he came, they came back from. Now, this is on the other side. This is the prophets warning them, don't go into captivity. And, and Jeremiah does the same thing, talking about these two different paths and, the, and where they lead to. It's either the path of trust in God or the path of self, self-trust, trusting in ourselves. Now listen, Jeremiah said it this way. The same thing, but just a little different. Jeremiah 17, thus says the Lord, cursed. Cursed means to be set with negative, to be beset with negative consequences. Is the man who trusts in men, makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. He shall be like a shrub in the desert. He shall, be, he shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places. In the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. That's the man built on the sand. That's the man like the chaff that the psalmist says. Jeremiah says the same thing. And then the next verse he says, blessed. That means having divine favor invoked upon you. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. Notice the result. He should be like a tree planted by the waters. It spreads out its roots by the river. He shall not fear when heat comes, whose leaf will be green. It's, but, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor shall cease from yielding fruit. Do you see, do you see the, two, the two paths here? Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. This pattern of succeeding for a while without God is found in Scripture. What we say is success, what we see, what the people, what the world is chasing after, it's, it, it happens for a while, but it's only for a little while. And it happened to Israel before what we're looking at here. Before the captivity, what was happening? 
Before the captivity, there was a time right before the captivity. Israel was experiencing a great time, a time of incredible prosperity. While at the same time, they were worshiping idols, God's people. They were, there was incredible time of prosperity. It seems like it was going really well. But yet at the same time, instead of worshiping the one true God, they were worshiping idols. They were living in excess and they were mistreating others, treating them with inequity. So what happened before this time? The prophet Amos, we could call him a country prophet. He was the country boy prophet. God calls the prophet off the farm. And he begins to warn the nation. This is context now. This is, this is how they got here. He warns the nation. He warns the leaders. And he says something like this. If you continue down the path of your sins... You're going to experience God's judgments and God's chastisement. Now, the strange, you know, I thought about this when I, when, I, when I look at context and I realize what's happening here. It had to be, Amos' sermons had to be really, really strange. Everything's going so good. I mean, they're, they're, they're experiencing amazing prosperity. The, none of the nations around them at that moment were threatening them. And yet here comes Amos with this what we call negative sermon. And he's warning them if they don't turn from their sins, they're going to come under the judgment of the Lord. Listen to what he said during this time. It's a time of prosperity, a, pro- a time of seeming blessing, but yet they're living the wrong way. Here's what Amos said. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, who trust in Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel come. Go over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath and the great, and go to Gath of the Philistines. All of those three places that are mentioned had already been, been conquered by other nations. They'd already been defeated. And, he, and, and Amos is saying, if you think you're saved, go look at what happened to them. Don't think that can't happen to you. Isn't it amazing how we think that it's always going to happen to someone else? But then he says, are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Woe. Now notice what he says. Here's the prophet. Woe to you who put off, far off the day of doom who calls the seed of violence to come near, who lie in beds of ivory, stretch out on couches, eat lambs from the flock. These lambs were supposed to be offered to God on the Lord's day. They forgot the Lord's day. They were just eating the lambs and the calves in the midst of the stall who sing idly in the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, but they weren't using them for the Lord. They were, they were singing for themselves. David sang for the Lord. They were inventing things for themselves. And then he says, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments and are not grieved for the affliction of Jacob, meaning northern Israel that had already been taken Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives. And those who recline at banquets shall be removed. And the Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. 
And do you think they took, this is before the trouble. Do you think they took that to heart? Do you think they said, hey, we're, we're living selfishly. We're living in sin. We're, we're spending God's money on ourselves. We're not worshiping. We're not being faithful. We're not serving the Lord. No, they didn't do any of that. They just kept headlong in because everything seemed good. But now we fast forward way, way into the future. Decades later, and now everything the prophet has said come to pass Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and 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 at this first northern attack by the Assyrians Judah barely escaped and you'll remember this in Isaiah 36 and 7 when 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 Assyrians were coming to attack Judah and they they what did they do they repented and they got right with God and Hezekiah takes the letter from Sennacherib and he spreads it out before the Lord and he cries out to God and anytime we turn back to God he has mercy no matter where, any time we look to God, he will have mercy. And they'd look to God and they trust in God. And guess what God did? He spared them and rescued them. And one, remember this? One angel went out and killed 185,000 Assyrians. Just one angel. And they were spared. But do you think they lived for the Lord consistently? No. After, after they fell right back into their old sins. And finally, what God had said came to pass. Finally, Judah, because of their sins, their wicked leaders, their compromise, they went into captivity for 70 years. And now the 70-year captivity is over. The Persian king Cyrus allowed them to return to Jerusalem to build their temple really a relatively small number of all, about 50,000 went back. And for two years after they came back from God's judgment and God's chastisement, after two short years of their effort to rebuild the temple, it was stopped. It was hard. Sambalat, Tobiah, you read that in the book of Nehemiah. They're giving them a hard time. They're sending letters to the king and saying, hey, these people are going to rebel against you again like they have in the past. And finally, it got so hard, they just quit after two years. And for about 16 years. So now they've been back about 20 years, and the work's not progressing. In fact, nothing is even happening. It's just lying there in ruins. It would be like, it would be like this still being here for another 16 to 20 years and us not getting the job done. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine this? 16, year, 16 more years and we still haven't got this done. And I just said, God, God's mercy, it's months now. And then it's 20 more years, 16 more years. It'd be the same exact thing. How would you feel? Would you be encouraged? Would you be joyful? Would you be faith-filled? No. And, and that's, th think about it. I want to put, put, us, put us in their shoes a moment. This is, this is how these people felt. And after all those years, finally, God speaks to an old prophet. And then God speaks to a young prophet, Haggai and Zechariah. And then after all the apathy of year, decade, over a decade, almost two decades of apathy, of neglect, of putting God first, people just building their own houses, doing their own thing, all of a sudden, Haggai speaks and he says, so the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, and the son, of, the son of Shetiel, 
governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant. That's all the people that were, had returned. And they, they came and they, they began to work on the house of the Lord. They began to give themselves to the work again. And of course, it's two months after Hagar began to prophesy, two months after the passage I read to you, God gave that to Zechariah. And God gives him from chapter 1, verse 7 to chapter 6, verse 15, the Lord gives him eight visions. And we're going to look at some of those visions because what they are, they, they, listen, they are God's promises to a discouraged people that have watched God's work just lay there for decades. And God gives them encouragement to rebuild their lives and to rebuild God's worship, to rebuild God's house. So think about it for a moment again. Place yourself in their shoes. Been back 20 years. Initial efforts failed. They're looking around, living with the consequences of all their, their sins and their forefathers' sins. And, and I'm thinking this is what they thought. They were probably saying, you think there's ever any hope for us? They were probably saying something like, will we will it ever be different? Will we ever see a better day? Will we ever see God's simple bit? Will we ever see God's worship restored? Will we ever, ever again experience the blessings of the Lord? I think maybe there's people like that. Maybe here. Maybe you've experienced a failure in your life. Maybe you've been under God's chastisement. Maybe you have looked in your own life, and maybe it's not your whole life. Maybe it's a part of your life, and you, and you say, will I, will, I ever, will I ever see victory in that area? Will, that ever, will I ever be whole in that area? And here's what we need to understand from the prophet Zechariah, and that is this. A life restored, a life rebuilt, always begins with the promise of God's holy word. And so God sends his promises when we're standing in the middle of failure. God sends his promise of comfort in the middle of our failure. And that, that promise should inspire us to rise up and say, I'm going to be rebuilt again. My life's going to be rebuilt again. My family's going to be rebuilt again. My, the work of God can be rebuilt again. Why? Because God's promises are yay and they are amen. And they never fail if we'll trust in them instead of trusting in ourselves. That's what God's promises do for us. Romans says this, whatever things are written before were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scripture we might have hope. It's the same thing that Zechariah said. The Lord spoke words that were comforting. The Lord spoke good words to us. And so just for a moment, I want to show you what the Lord, the visions of God's promise for rebuilding that the Lord gave to the people because in a sense he gives them to us in our new testament and the first thing he says is this he gives them a promise of restoration and future blessing in other words he's telling them because you know when we go through trials or when we fail or when we have a difficult time the first thing we say is do i even have a future is there any future for us there's people that think like that in the world's through this, through this pandemic, 
There's people that have wondered, do I, do I have a future? What, you know, loss of job and, and loss of whatever. And do I have a future? And through this passage, the, and that's a vision that he has. But notice the vision, Zechariah 2 verse 1. And then he then I, I raised my eyes and I looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. When somebody had a measuring line, you know, some places they would measure for judgment. This is not measuring for judgment. This is measuring for building. God's saying, I'm about to build something into our lives. I'm about to do something new. There's going to be some new stones laid. There's going to be advancement that takes place. And he said, where are you going? And he said, to measure Jerusalem and to see what its width is and what its length is. And there was an angel talking to me going out and another angel coming out to meet me who said, run, speak to this young man saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and the livestock that are going to be in it. That wasn't happening right there now. I mean, the, I mean, it's all rubble right now, but God said, I'm about to build it again. God can read rebuild things that have been broken down in our lives. Do you believe it? God can rebuild it. There's nothing to, I mean, we, you may look in your heart and see ruins all about. God can rebuild our lives. What God is saying is growth and blessing is promised for Israel. God is saying to this people, it's not a dead end. You have a future and you have a hope. There is a verse of scripture that I constantly hear quoted and it's good and we should quote it because it, it corresponds with other things that God says in our New Testament. But this verse directly corresponds with this passage here and with this ancient remnant people that have come back from captivity. Jeremiah spoke before the captivity took place and he said, tell the people this, for I know the thoughts that I have that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a hope and a future. And that's what he's saying here to these people. Your life is not a dead end. This work is not a dead end because you have a hope and you have a future. Why? Because you have the promises of God to rebuild your lives upon. God's telling them, stop looking at your past failures. Stop looking at your past disappointments because I have some future blessings for you. There are blessings, come on, yet up ahead for us. Isaiah speaks to this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I will, send ba- I will send to Babylon, and I will bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who, make the, who makes a way in the sea, in a path through the waters, who brings forth the chariots and the horses, the army and the power. They shall lie down to get the, the, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, and they shall not rise They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Stop thinking about your failures, your disappointments, your captivity. Stop thinking about what happened in Babylon and in in where Medo-Persia. He said, know that I have a future for you. I'm sending a man out with a measuring line, and I'm going to rebuild what's been destroyed, says the Lord in his word. God says his promises blessing and future. And then he says in verse five of Zechariah two, there's another promise to build on for I says the Lord will be a wall of fire around you. And I will, I will be the glory in her 
midst. Now notice a wall of fire around Jerusalem. Now notice Jerusalem's wall at this time were broken down. They weren't building the walls. Nehemiah would come after the temple was built. And he would build the walls. They were all, remember in, in the first and second chapter of Nehemiah, he's riding around the walls and he's just heart is broken to see all the devastation. That's way beyond this part here. But notice God said, even though there's not a physical wall, listen, God does not need a physical wall to protect us. He surrounds, he can surround us with a wall of fire. Can I hear an amen? amen. God can cause us to be secure. We don't have to live in fear. Of anything. Fear is not to be a part of our lives. We're not to fear people. Listen, I don't come, I love you and I think you know that, but I do not come in this sanctuary worried about who likes the word of God or doesn't like the word of God or who's going to be happy or that one that may be offended. I never approach this. I don't think of those things. I'm, I'm only interested in making sure that one great person is pleased. Not my wife, though she's a great person. It's, it's the Lord. The Lord. And I want you to know he can be a wall of fire around us. There, Sister Stephanie sang about a table in the presence of our enemies. You can have a world against you. All your enemies can be against you. The whole, everything can be against you. But I tell you, if God is for us, who can be against us? When the people of God came out of Egypt, he showed them he was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And here he says the same thing. Remember when the, the young prophet came out of the tent? And he saw all the enemies. I think they were the Arameans or the Syrians. And Elijah comes out and he's cool, calm, and collected. He's going, what? the young prophet, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the old prophet says, Lord, open this young man's eyes. And when God opened his eyes, he sees the Lord's army. <laughs> he sees the chariots. He sees the fiery horses. He said, listen, we need to, you know, sometimes we're focused on the wrong things. We're focused on the, the ruins or we're focused on the past disappointments or, or how we feel at the moment. All that's irrelevant. We could just lift our eyes. We'd see the Lord sitting on his throne. That's what Stephen saw. The Stephen saw the Lord stand up for him. The Lord is still on his throne. Let's act like he's on his throne. Let's pray like he's on his throne. Let's live like he's on his throne. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you a future blessing. This is my promise to you. I'm sending a man without, with a measuring line. But I'm also going to be a fire protection around you as, you as you rebuild. As you rebuild, God's protection is around us. And then there's another wonderful promise. It's the promise of his divine presence. Look at verse 5. He says, I will be the glory in the midst. I will be the glory in the midst. That glory in the midst is the presence of God. In the new Jerusalem, there's going to need to be not any light because he's going to be the light and the glory and his presence is going to be, fill that city. Ezekiel, in his vision in chapter 10, 
he saw something terrible. He saw the glory of God leave. He said this. This is, this is before the bad news, before the captivity. He, he saw in a vision. He says, he said, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood above the cherubim. That stood above the cherubim and stood over the cherubim. God, they had so sinned against God. They had so sinned. They had killed the prophets. Even this prophet, some say that he was the one killed that Jesus talked about between the porch and the altar. That Zechariah. And the presence of God left the holiest of holies. When, and and in, in, in detailed fashion, I don't have time to read it all, but he, it, it goes away. God's presence left away. I don't know of any worse thing to happen than to someone to lose the presence of God. Do you know hell is going to be the absence of God? People that don't want God one day will get that prayer answered if they don't repent of their sin and come to Jesus. Can you imagine... I don't want to imagine it. A place of utter darkness. Hopelessness to the maximum. Fear to the maximum. Anxiety to the maximum. And the complete and utter absence of God's holy presence. I can't even imagine it. I really don't want to think about it. The presence had left because they grieved God away with their lifestyle, with their sin. God will not fellowship in the darkness. Even 1 John says he only fellowships in the light. Do we want God? We must be holy. We must live righteously before him. But here is this can you, when, when Ezekiel gave those words as a prophet of captivity, actually, he went with them in the captivity. But now here God gives a new word. And Zechariah 4, 6 says, and he answered, he says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He says this, God left, but God's about to come back in a very powerful way. His presence and his glory is going to come again and fill our lives and fill his temple when we build it. Later on, God's glory would really come in when Jesus came in this very temple that they rebuilt and, and, and Herod added onto it. He came in this temple in Matthew 21. It says he turned over the money table because they were offending him. But then it says he healed them and they did miracles in the temple. They were seeing God's glory manifest there. And of course, you know that on the day of Pentecost, God's glory came again. And you know that we can have God's presence. Come on, amen. We should cherish the presence of God. Come on, church. We should cherish the very presence of God. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And quickly, there's the promise, another promise to build on. And that's in verse 8. It's the promise of God's love. Look at this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after, his, after glory, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you 
For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye is that precious part of the eye. It it speaks of that important part, that precious part. And God's people are precious to him. I won't touch on this, maybe another time. But, I, but his, his, his comfort, and you know, he said I must be comforting words. His comfort and his love, should, that should comfort us. His care should comfort us. He cares for us. We're not a number in his computer. He knows us. He knows our cares. He knows our difficulties. It should comfort us. His love should give us peace. His love should give us courage, should give us faith, faith to face any and every challenge in our lives. Now, quickly, I'm closing. There's the promise of, of a new usefulness. Verse 11, he said, many nations shall be joined to the Lord. And in that day, they shall become my people. God's purpose for, for pr- precious Israel was that they be a light to the nations. But they had the lights, the spiritual lights had been turned out. Because they forsook their calling and their election. But here, there's a promise to rebuild on. I'm going to bring nations. I'm going to bring them to your life. I'm going to use you again. I set you aside. I set you aside under Chesai. I set you aside in Babylon. I set you aside in Medo-Persia. But, but yeah, many nations are going to be joined. And this is, this is saying, you're going to be a light to the nations again. I think you would agree with me that it's a privilege to, be, to serve the Lord in any capacity. There's a hymn, an old hymn called, Jesus Use Me. Dear Lord, I'll be a witness if you will help my weakness. I know that I'm not worthy, Lord, of thee. By eyes of faith I see thee upon the cross of Calvary. Dear Lord, I cry, let me thy servant be. And the chorus goes, Jesus, use me. Oh, Lord, don't refuse me, for surely there's a work that I can do, even though it's humble. Help my will to crumble, though the cost be great. I'll work for you. It's a privilege to work for the Lord. And if this church is ever built, it won't be because of me. It'll be because of you. Or I would say it this way. It will be because of us. Ephesians tells us how the church should be built. The church is not some one-man show, some celebrity silliness. That's ridiculous. The church is a body. And Ephesians says that the the effective working which every part, every part does its share. Do you know the, work, the Lord has a work for you to do? He has a work for every single person in this church that we may bring glory to his name and that we may build his work. There's the promise here of Satan's defeat over our lives. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing.
standing right at his right hand to oppose him. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, he says. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is it not... Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Do you know that Satan, see what, what Zechariah says is in a vision. I see what's happening behind the scenes. You know what's happening behind the scenes? If the spirit realm could be opened to our eyes, we would see that Satan wants to stop every pastor, every church, every gospel, every witness, every evangelism, every missionary. He doesn't want this church to be built. But I tell you, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Because on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, when Jesus hung on the cross with nails in his hands and in his feet, and he died on the cross, he defeated all the powers of the enemy. He defeated, he dealt a death blow to, the, to Satan's kingdom. And now Jesus rules according to 1 Corinthians 15, 26. He must reign till all his enemies be put under his feet. And one day, even death itself, the last enemy, will be put down. The death of Jesus on the cross is the very death itself. The death of death. And one day we're going to be raised like we preached about. Satan's going to be defeated. And he cannot stop an obedient people. You hear me? Satan is not a co-adversary. Satan is a created being that is defeated. He's defeated by the blood of Jesus. He's defeated by the resurrection. He's defeated by the armor of God. He's defeated through prayer, defeated through the proclamation of the word of God. Satan is defeated, and he has no power over this church. We shall rebuild in Jesus' name, and we shall build on the promises of the Lord. Quickly. Because I want to give you that you can read these in your own time. I just skip over the top. There's the promise of cleansing. We live in a very dirty spiritual world, unclean. And we listen, I'm gonna be clear. We love those who are unclean. They are lost, they are without Jesus. And Jesus wants to cleanse them. But Jesus also wants to cleanse his church. Chapter 3 of Zechariah, here's a promise. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he answered and he spoke and he stood before, as he stood before him. He said, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. The Lord wants to cleanse us. How, how is sin to be dealt with? You hear these people saying, oh, well, you know, God's so loving. He doesn't care about all that. That is ridiculous. Unscriptural. First, we have to acknowledge our sin. We have to see that sin is spiritually deadly. And John said, if we say we have no sin... We make God a liar. We say, God, you lie. Would you say God lied? Not me. God said, you're a sinner. I say, yeah, that's the truth, Lord. I'm a sinner. Yeah, that's true. We can't go around justifying our sin and think we have a relationship with God. Then we have to confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9. This, this includes godly sorrow, not just like, hey, Lord, you, you, you know I, I messed up here. And this, you know, some people act like they're buying a hamburger when they're talking to God. No, our sins are serious. Come on, well, there needs to be humility. There needs to be seriousness, sobriety. There needs to be some godly sorrow 
If, if we really repent of sin, I think Holy Spirit brings that godly sorrow. It's not that we earn it, but it's a, it's a work of the Spirit. It's a work of repentance. And then we have to seek, we have to seek God's forgiveness we have to bring our lives into God's obedience and God's commands. Repent, Jesus said. Peter said, repent. In another place, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Repent. I'll close with this. It's the promise of sanctification. He says... Let them put a clean turban on his head. Verse 5. So they put a clean turban on his head. And they put clothes upon him. The angels of the Lord stood by. Now notice. Joshua the high priest. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Joshua the high priest. He's the high priest of Israel. He represents Israel. Now Joshua the high priest was a man. He was a type of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Now, there's one huge, humongous, enormous difference, and that's this. Joshua, the high priest, representing Israel, needed to be cleansed. He needed to have the mitre that said, Holiness of the Lord put upon him. But there was, a, there was another high priest that came, and he did not need to be made holy. He was holy. He, he, he was perfectly righteous in every way. He never sinned in word, in thought, or in deed. So therefore, his righteousness can become our righteousness in the born again experience. We can be declared righteousness by our great high priest, Jesus' righteousness. Amen. Because he doesn't have to have it put on him. He is righteousness. For he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Je Jesus is the equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua. It's, a, it's the same. The Lord, the Lord is salvation. Here's the thing. We can live for God. Amen. How can we live for God? Listen, how can we live for God? How can we rebuild our lives and live for God. Seems so hard, Pastor. I know my own weaknesses. Here's, here's the core, the, the fundamental truth of Christianity. It's not us just looking into the, you know, the 613 commands of the Old Testament and, and try, never do it. You'd, you'd fail in 30 minutes or less. Here's the gospel. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Say that with me. Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians says, my wife and I yesterday, yesterday afternoon, we just, I just been busy week and I said, we just need to pray 
I just need to pray. So we sat down for a little while and we just read the Bible and then we prayed. And we read Colossians chapter 1 and we prayed through Paul's prayer. And this was at the end to him who willed to make known the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not self will or self effort, it is faith in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit empowering us to live out the principles of God in a lost world. It's God in us. Rebuilding our lives from the inside.